The views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speaker. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice from your own physician. Hello, today is September 14, 2018, and this is Douglas Paul, the upcoming chairman of Public Affairs Committee for the North American Spine Society, here with Dr. Sullivan and Dr. Pugley regarding their recent publication in the Spine Line on Physician and Hospital Reputation Management. I'd like to introduce the two authors, Dr. Sullivan. Hi, my name is uh, Bill Sullivan. I'm the medical editor of, of Spine Line. Uh, which was my role in this, uh, and uh, I'll let the uh, primary author introduce himself. And so as medical editor of Spineline, um, I'm involved in this podcast as uh, one of the people who on the editorial board in selecting our articles. My background is in physical medicine and rehabilitation. I'm associate professor at the University of Colorado. My name is Andrew Pugley. I'm an orthopedic spine surgeon at the University of Iowa, an assistant professor, and have uh, had an interest in outcomes and quality research for for many years. We are here today discussing the recent article about physician and, op- and hospital reputation management by Dr. Pugley. But my first question is for Dr. Sullivan. Um, could you tell us why the Spineline Editorial Board chose this particular topic to feature? Yes, Spineline is an interesting publication, I've always felt. Um, We have uh, an opportunity through the publication to provide information to a broad variety of uh, readers across NAS and and even other specialties um, that that go beyond what some of the limitations of other publications like uh, the Spine Journal or some of the other uh, more rigorously scientific journals can, can offer. And so... Our editorial board is constantly looking for topics, and when this one came up, it really um, it piqued our interest because um, it really there's there's very little information out there about reputation management and and uh, and how things have have evolved in medicine. Um, I have far too many gray hairs to be considered a millennial, but I think my kids count as millennials, and this is certainly one of those uh, uh, topic areas. Um, that has come up uh, with social media and really all the um, all the changes that have happened with uh, with medicine and the internet and uh, it's kind of that interface between uh, the things that we do in patient care and what is out there on the on the website. So uh, I, I was just we, we were really fascinated by this and, and understanding that. Um, you know, you can you can get a Yelp review on just about anything out there nowadays. Uh, we've we've for a long time, even here in Colorado, had um, had where the the CEO of the hospital would send out uh, emails to patients asking for their input. Uh, but but some of this in reputation management is a is a is a growing field and of growing importance to the medical community. Thank you very much. I, I agree completely. Uh, and I was very intrigued by the article when it came out, and I'm interested to to learn more about it from Dr. Pugley today. Um, in fact, that's a nice segue to the first question for him. Uh, when I read the article, the first thing that came out in the very beginning was my concern, and I think a lot of other surgeons' concerns, that the pursuit of value or quality, um, some critics say, is really about cost-cutting in healthcare, as 
an orthopedic spine surgeon and more specifically just a professional who has dedicated part of his career to researching and advocating for this improvement in quality and value, what would you say to these critics? Well, I would say there's certainly some truth to you know, the desire of um, healthcare in the U.S. to, to need or want to, to cut costs. And my background is, uh, as I'm a physician, I do spine surgery, but I've been a long-term advocate of, of high-quality data. And, you know, within spine, I, in prior, as a resident and, and prior to, to you know, becoming a spine surgeon, I spent a lot of time doing research on hip and knee replacements. And, you know, and I think we've made a lot of progress in some of the methodology um, for, for certain procedures that are more homogeneous. But one of the biggest challenges that I think NAS faces and we as spine professionals face is how to you know, properly assess and, qu and quantify some of the problems that we have uh, with heterogeneity within our spine practices. And, you know, for example, I work at an academic medical center, do very complex surgeries um, many days out of the week, multi multiple levels. And, um, some of the challenges we're into is when there's there's comparisons drawn by online reviews, by CMS, by other outfits that try and compare my practice and my patient outcomes to some of the neighboring surgeons that do one 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 or two level of surgeries, and um, some of, some of our frustrations have been in data granularity and kind of this this concept of not having adequate data to do adequate assessments both in the quality realm the cost realm and the patient satisfaction realm um, have really uh, made me dig in and had driven my interest to, to look further. And that, in, in part, is what has inspired this article. And I participate in some of the NAS committees and one is the Valley Committee. And I thought this was a very timely topic given that um, you know, there's been, been national articles on uh, patients battling um, physicians and physicians suing patients back about posts on Yelp, and there's been several examples across the United States of, of big lawsuits. And um, and so kind of to circle back and actually answer your question, I certainly think the critics of this value and quality movement um, yeah, have, you know, they're right in, you know, in, in, in some respect. But, um, I mean, the reality is we spend more you know, per percent of our GDP than any other country in the world on health care. There's, you know, I finished reading a couple books on, on, on healthcare costs and a fan of Elizabeth Rosenthal in part and a big New York Times writer. And there's a, when you take a deep look into the U.S. healthcare, there's tremendous waste and there's certainly a lot of opportunity to cut costs, but, um, we need to cut costs for, for the purposes of trying to, to really eliminate the non-value added steps. And that's where having robust data can help flush what those steps are out. Um, also, in your article, you, you mention and you state that the provider organizations are not fully engaged with this rating process that we've, we've been discussing, and thus have ceded control to the outside industry. What do you think organizations like NAS uh, should be doing in the area of ratings to help patients, physicians, as well as hospitals? I think we look in, back historically, and we saw certain organizations, and we start with New York State, I think, is one of the examples that I report. I mean, Medicare did some reporting, public reporting or in, internal hospital reporting before that, but um, in New York State in the 90s, 
and you know I don't know all the the, the details on the on the story, but they started reporting outcomes of you know, major cardiac surgeries, and they quickly found that the the risk adjustment was totally inadequate. You know, based on the claims data, they couldn't discern what uh, you know how severe someone's heart failure was, how severe their overall comorbidity comorbidity burden was, just based on the claims data alone. And so they slowly found that there was a lot of erroneous kind of public rankings of physicians, and this drove unfortunate um, changes to physician behavior. Um, some of the, the, the most well-known, well renowned uh, cardiovascular surgeons that were doing tremendously difficult cases in the midst of the New York were um, seeing themselves ranked as some of the lowest quality physicians. And so so the, the societies started to develop their own algorithms and their own data collections. And, you know, the, the Society for Thoracic Surgery, STS, has developed uh, their own data collection systems and now you know, publicly reports them to organizations and, and uses, you know, they, they have been become the intermediary between um, the public and the physician to help screen and ensure high-quality data. I think there's many other organizations that are trying to do so. The American College of Surgeons, the general surgeons, have the ACS, the NISQIP, the National Surgical Quality Improvement Program, which is a, a program that um, that I'm a huge fan of and have written uh, much about. But uh, they have instituted clinical nurses to collect very specific, granular, robust data within each of the participating hospital systems um, for 30 days, you know, more or less. And with these very specific definitions and very high-quality data, they've been able to build very robust models of risk adjustment. And it's really this risk adjustment, uh, which I think is key, and it's extremely complicated. And these outside organizations, um, I mean, they just they just want to, I mean, they're startup, a lot of them are startup companies, and they just want to uh, make headlines. And so they, in no way, have data that's granular enough, certainly in spine surgery, to make these kind of assessments. Um, and, you know, they they don't have sound methodologists kind of in the field that they are evaluating often. And when you look at the different sites and the different methodologies of, let's say, one hospital or one uh, physician, the different databases will give you different results. And so there's just not really much faith validity to, the, to, to a lot of what these organizations are doing. And, you know, the – UMass, I think recently, very recently, has announced a, a registry, and UMass, again, because, as I mentioned before, the heterogeneity in what we do in spine, like how you, I mean, how do you compare a physical medicine rehab doctor's quality to a spine surgeon's quality? I mean, that's, I mean, we're one part of one organization, but that comparison is almost impossible because um, there's very few similar metrics, um, you know, based on just, like, the quality of work we perform to compare one to the other. And, you know, NAS, with their registry, and, you know, I, I agree with, you know, they I think it's always a struggle, but how much data do we collect? Um, you know, we don't want to collect too much data, but we want to collect enough. But as the registry is populated and builds up, I think NAS is an, an excellent opportunity to start using this data in a positive way for its members to publicly, publicly report. And, you know, how, you know, how that, that, that could be done. and, and and, you know, why it's not been done really in orthopedics and spine and nurture is because we haven't had the data. And, you know, even CMS with their hospital rankings and their physician rankings has been hesitant 
to do very granular rankings because they've recognized and they're the masters of masters of their own claims data they have some of the best methodologists in the world working with them and if they can't even use all of their medicare claims data when you look at the, Medi the hospital compare the medicare compare sites they won't even rarely give you granular data on each each surgeon because they know it's not really valid and so and what we can do as, as an organization, um, whether it's NAS or other spun organizations, is use you know, the, the registry data to demonstrate you know, who's, an out, who's performing as expected or who's an outstanding performer and publish that um, you know, positively. And, and for those that are not necessarily there, you know, there's ways to not necessarily overtly publish their, you know, their low ranking, but maybe provide some insight to that hospital system or that physician that for some reason, you know, we're, we're not seeing the same, um, you know, expected outcomes in your practice and help them locally to deploy potential quality improvement and maneuvers. But, you know, I, I, you know I'm sure that's in the grand scheme uh, for NAF to, to try and leverage their, their new registry for, um, you know, for physician and patient betterment. Yeah, and I would add that you're right. Um, the you know, we're, we are kind of a little bit behind in terms of both physicians and organizations. Um, you know, this kind of got away from us pretty quickly when we started seeing online reviews um, on sites, uh, you know, many of that are mentioned in the column like Yelp and others that really are patient satisfaction or, um, you know, patient dissatisfaction uh, comments that we've, you know, that you commonly see. So I do think one of the things that physicians and professional organizations can do in that arena um, is through their education and, and uh, patient education specifically, is to let them know what some of the limitations of the online reviews are. Um, and, um, and, and that may be a way just to help uh, sort of balance the scales a little bit between the questions that the online reviewers ask, you know, the ease of making an appointment, you know, that, that, that just that comment by itself means different things to different people. So. Um, Anyway, I, th I do think that there could be some, like a, almost an FAQ or, uh, you know, when, when, when using health grades and Yelp to make your selection, you know, understanding what the limitations are to that. Dr. Pugley, would you also think or believe that in the future this um, complexity of spine surgery based on huge academic centers, and I actually call them quaternary referral centers, would be something that's evaluated at a higher or more complex level, and that those ratings would be more apt to be shown on websites or places for patients to see, and then the less complex things could be done by the more um, non-regional or the smaller uh, rural area physicians and spine surgeons? Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, certainly, you know, that's, you know, from an economic standpoint for the U.S. healthcare system, that's the ideal setup. But unfortunately, just given the, the structure of our payment, um, you know, through fee-for-service, and even as you move into value-based, you know, value like bundle payments, that doesn't necessarily, you know, it's ideal. And, and certainly in other countries, like, I mean, India is a perfect example where they have, you know, they, they call it the spoken hug, hub format where they have the central hub, the complex hospital system, and then all these more outlying um, ambulatory centers or clinics where they can do less complex procedures. Um, you know, I'm, 
you know, just finishing up a master's degree at Dartmouth in healthcare delivery science. And we, we went over a lot of different uh, business cases and case stories of hospital systems. And I think, you know, the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, CHOP, who I'm sure we have many members that are part of NAS, they have a more of a spoken hub type um, type network where that's the exact kind of setup of, you know, more simple cases are done in the communities and the more complex cases are brought in. But, you know, you know the, obviously the economics of doing that are, are one barrier. And then even, you know, the, the bright line between or trying to, to really discern what the complex case versus the simple case is impossible, I think. It's fine. I mean, it's, there's just no clear you know, gray area. I mean, you could, you know, anything fusion, you could argue is complex and only disjective and decompressions are, are complex. And then, you know, how that would apply to, you know, other non-surgical spine specialties, I think would be very challenging. I, I think certainly ideally that would be, um, you know, that's where other countries have moved. And we may move there someday, but there's just so many barriers within, the, and really culture barrier too within the U.S. healthcare system that that might uh, prove too great to ever reach that state. I see. Um, well, thank you for that uh, that answer. I, uh, I I do believe also that I think things are moving in that direction as well. Um, in your article, you also mentioned a few of the nonprofit organizations that are using algorithms and uh, the current data that we've been speaking of on this podcast to provide reviews of us and other physicians. But during this time of privacy um, and content manipulation by websites such as Facebook, how concerned are you in particular that consumers can be or are easily or at least somewhat manipulated by these organizations and especially for the potential future for-profit organization that would seek to make money on these reviews? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm certainly concerned. I mean, because it doesn't, it seems like it's the wild west, certainly within medical reputation um, sphere that these, these profit or non even non-profit uh, companies will pop up and they'll become popular just because they can peddle, peddle reviews. And really the validity, you know, as I mentioned in, you know, in the article, we go into a few examples. You know, one is ProPublica. This was a uh, company that's, that really became big in summer three years ago or so. And they would uh, compare physicians across, you know, eight or ten different procedures like total knee and total hip and spine surgery was, was part of that. And when, um, when organizations with better data started diving into it and methodologists are diving into to the, to the methodology that these companies were using, they found severe limitations. And, you know, since ProPublic has been in the news so much, they've obviously taken on a different realm and they do other kind of watchdog agencies to some extent. Um, but, you know, they, like I said, the goal, my, one of my gold standards for data analytics has been the ACS NISQIP. And, in the in the article, we quote a, a study where um, at um, a few select sites they they collected or they used the the ACS NISQIP data to analyze the same procedures that ProPublica looked at, and they took their their data sets and they applied the simply applied the exclusion criteria to the pro, to their that ProPublica used for their claims data, you know, the Medicare claims data, to their own data sets. 
and they found there was significant, like 80-90% of the of the patients within the, the ACS Nisquip data set were excluded. And you know, when you exclude such a large patient population, you know, organization, let's say, you know, a small hospital that's taking care of very few of these more complex patients that, that essentially became, I mean, some of them became excluded, you know, they have such a greater percentage of included patients versus, let's say, the academic medical center or vice versa. You really start to, I mean, just, it's just meso, meso, methodologically flawed, and that's just, just, it's very obvious, and you don't even need to, a PhD statisticians to tell you that. And so um, I think it's very concerning that uh, how available some of these, um, you know, these, these companies can can make their, you know, their presence on the, on the Internet um, without really any, um, you know, any external uh, check or um, kind of standards that exist for sharing data, for, you know, diving into to most of this, but the data they do buy and the, the reviews they do buy, I mean, it is a lot of, most of this is publicly available data anyways and a lot of it's de-identified. So as far as actually like, I mean, privacy issues, I think there's less concern about data leak because I think even them when they have de-identified data are subject to severe penalties by the government, just like hospitals are if there's data loss. But it's more to see the methodology, which I think is a huge uh, concern, at least on my behalf. Well, I think um, you've probably already answered this question. Um, I believe I do know the answer to it already based on what you've already said, but I, I just want to be more clear on this uh, so that our listeners uh, can know the specific answer. But do you believe that physician ranking sites have or could have a significant impact on the quality and delivery and value of the medical care we provide as, as surgeons and physicians? Yeah, I think there's certainly I mean, even the ones that exist exist now. I think raise our attention to that domain, which maybe 10, 20 years ago physicians didn't even think about. Right? They didn't necessarily think about you know, how long the patient had been waiting. You know, it was all about them. You know, it was, was let's schedule this clinic to be most convenient for myself. And I think at least you know, although I'd argue flawed, these websites and these public ratings do provide. Um, you know, that perspective that is, you know, potentially missing within healthcare. So we can, you know, it just gives us a better look at how we can be better providers of healthcare, you know, obviously just with the medical, but also everything else that exists in our system. And so um, I think they can be very, you know, helpful for help for helping individual physicians and hospital systems identify problematic areas. Um, you know, to give you one example, you know, I just, you know, despite writing this article, I work for an academic medical center that has their own strategy that's pretty new for physician reputation, hospital reputation, which I can discuss later. But, um, you know, I, I don't necessarily act as, I'm not in, as, as engaged as I am on some of these websites with encouraging patients to necessarily post. But I do, um, in, in terms of this article, did review kind of everything I could find on the Internet about myself as a physician that was uh, that was great, and I found I found one negative review that really bothered me. It was actually a, a patient that I'd operated on a year prior, and um, he had uh, well this this review had must have been re um, written pretty recent to when I pulled up the article, and he you know it was a it was a posterior cervical fusion. The patient did fairly well, um, kind of no issues, and, and I I saw my patients forever, but I hadn't seen them in a while, and then. 
I got a call on Sunday night, and I wasn't even on call, but they got, they got a hold of me, and he was in ICU for an, an infection of his body. He had infections in his joints. He had one in his actually his anterior spine, and I had a posterior infusion. But anyways, he, he was he was septic, and he had uh, polycystic arthritis, and we ended up um, kind of an unrelated area of the spine was had an infection that we ended up operating on, in addition to my partner's operating on some of the infected joints, but. Uh, one of this, it must have been one of the patient's friends. They posted some negative review about how essentially this, this, this initial surgery that I had performed had caused some body-wide infection. And there was this kind of took me by shock because, I mean, I clearly didn't see any, I mean, the patient had a previous surgery that had totally healed, and this was a spontaneous separate infection. But someone in the patient's uh, realm perceived me as the kind of the culprit of this. And so at first I was, you know, I was very frustrated, and and I printed out um, the review, and he, I was still seeing this gentleman back, you know, further. And he had been in the hospital and ICU, he discharged, and and I was, I had it kind of in hand, all prepared to um, confront him about it. But ultimately, decided that wasn't necessarily the best thing, because first I didn't even know if he knew that this person had, had published, but I just. And he, he had a family that had finally showed up that I hadn't seen in the previous surgery and, and um, you know, got to know them and, and had been seeing him back regularly and he's done well. I never ended up addressing that with him. Um, and I honestly don't even think he, he may know that someone had put that in there. But I didn't react to it, but it made me aware of the small things that um, that that can trigger patients and their family to um, to write negative reviews. And so, you know, I several lessons from that. And I'd say one is you want to, you know, really to um, harness the positive uh, patient interactions that you have and encourage them in some way to uh, post on, on some of these, you know, Yelp, health grades, vitals, whatever it might be, and um, to really flood, you know, your, your reviews with these positive reviews. Um, Rather than being reactionary, I think, in, in, in tackling um, individual reviews, I think that's ultimately, you know, makes you look, you know, it doesn't make you look empathetic as a physician. Right? So I think that's a dangerous path to go down. And we can talk to you a little bit later about the the path that this one physician has, has chose to go down and sue a patient uh, that posted on Yelp. But, you know, that just, you know, from my perspective, doesn't make you appear like a compassionate caregiver when you're and you're being overly, you know, harsh. And, I mean, you're going to get, no matter what you do and how hard you try, there's going to be some, you know, small, you can't, I mean, it's healthcare is unpredictable. The human body is unpredictable, so there's, there's going to be less than optimal outcomes. But thinking about anything that you can do to, um, you know, to really emphasize the positive attributes of your, of, of your practice, your hospital system is critical. Yeah, I think that's a great point too, uh, Andrew. That uh, you know, it's so important to uh, you know we don't you know the squeaky wheel gets the grease as as most of us know, and so it's really hard. Sometimes we feel uncomfortable though asking people for positive feedback or writing positive reviews. But that is, I think that's the new day and age. You know, back in the as I call them the olden days, you get a letter from somebody or a card, and you'd stick it in your file and save it and and. Uh, even even sometimes people going up for promotion back then would have letters written from patients as testimonials. Well, now nowadays that's all electronic. So so figuring out a way to help manage that is is important. 
Dr. Pugley, I think all of our listeners would like to know ultimately how the patient did. Uh, you, you described a very nice, touching, and, and both sympathetic and empathetic story about the patient, but I think they would like to know, could you give us a few little moments on that before we move on? Yeah, I mean, he, he did he did well, and I mean, I just saw him back a few weeks or a month ago, a few weeks ago, and, and he's, you know, more or less back to normal. Um, so, I mean, he survived near death, and, and um yeah, and I and I you know, it's in the back of my head every time I see him that when I tell him was wrote this review, but and I've not brought up to him nor asked him to write to, to write any other reviews. Um but yeah, he's he's been doing well and um you know, I'm glad that you know we could help him and say goodbye ultimately. See that's that that's what I was talking about. So that you didn't feel comfortable asking him to write a positive review then to to override whoever it was that wrote the negative. I think that's. Yeah, I think there's. Yeah, and and we we could potentially get this in later, but I mean some of the the management strategies that I've, I've certainly uncovered in, in writing this article and talking with with people that have successfully kind of harnessed that you know way to, to harness their very very satisfied patients to 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 write and to publish about the, about the particular surgeon's result. Um, but I mean I I mean it's, there's people that have. Um, you know, that, for example, will have uh, part of their, you know, their surveys, whether they're patient report outcomes, patient satisfaction, they're, they're doing internal patient satisfaction instead of the external ones just to get a sense of what that is. But then even taking that subset of people that answer very, very satisfied or highly satisfied and then directing them towards, you know, even electronically, um, you know, like in the survey writing, an immediate review about their experience online. And there's several spine centers that we visited. Um, you know, as part of we, we have a spine center here in Iowa, and we did some renovations and, and uh, overhauls. And during that process, we visited a few different institutions, and I was kind of shocked at how in tune some of um, and some of them are even academic centers, but how in tune they were to, you know, asking the patients at every step, you know, how could they do better? Is this enough? You know, how satisfied are you? What you know, look, how can we change? And I mean, we're we're used to that when we go to, to to fancy hotels, but hardly used to that in healthcare. And, and certainly, systems are beginning to figure this out and beginning to act. And um, you know, at some point, and for better or worse, we we all should uh, you know, think about getting there. Well, thank you for that answer. And and over the past few minutes, we have been discussing what us or other spine surgeons or even our hospitals should do to protect ourselves, but what about the role of public entities like CMS or consumer protection agencies? What role should they be playing in cautioning patients about the validity of these third-party reporting websites such as Yelp and HealthGrades and RateMDs? I mean, definitely they should take an active role, right? I mean, with the whole, with the Sunshine Act and physicians receiving payments, and the government felt the need to interject themselves to make it publicly available. Um, and, you know, while that was very controversial and some of us may disagree with the extent to which that was done, um, I mean, we don't see the same thing being enacted on organizations that, you know, such as the like Publica, Health Grades, or whatnot. But they're... You know, especially when they're reporting on individual physicians with with flawed methodology, I think that demands a response by some governing organization. And I'm not necessarily a fan of 
big government and, and over legislation, but this is an area when it starts to affect individual physicians and physician practices in a way that um, that isn't fair because we have such diverse practices and as has been well established, this data analytics and the data granularity don't exist to discern, you know, a high quality from a low quality spine physician at this point in time. They just don't exist, period. And um, you know, that being said, you know, I would like to see, you know, the government or CMS impose some blanket rules on on these any if you want to report on any healthcare um, institution or physician, you know, with a tax ID number or whatnot, NPI number, you need to follow the, you need the following standards. You need to be transparent about your methodology. What exactly is your data source? What exactly are you analyzing? How are you analyzing it? What your inclusion and exclusion criteria? Explain your risk. And like I mean, there should just be a list of uh, these methodological questions that are um, that need to be answered and transparent. Then there should be before they're even allowed to start publishing these, some kind of external review by let's say CMS and their methodologists to see if this even meets snuff of, of something reasonable. Um, and, you know, I, I think, and then, you know, I argue that um, it's critical that each of these sites that is going to report on a hospital or a physician have a very standardized format for posting objections or responses. So if you see a negative review, that there's a very clear pathway that you can address this whether it's, you know, some empathetic response that doesn't have any, you know, hip, hip implications or, um, you know, a way to contest that. I mean, so and there's some variability in what, what is available now and how you can contest various results and ask for them to be taken down, but they're not universal and they're not, um, you know, necessarily enforced. And so I would love to see very discreet um, rules uh, more or less rules of engagement if you're going to play in this space of reporting on hospital systems and physicians over their quality and cost. I think, and I believe that I heard it inside your answer there, and thank you for that answer, but I want to be clear to our listeners, do you know of anything currently being done that uh, reflects exactly what you said regarding reporting these to CMS or another consumer protection agency? Well, I mean, CMS is their own physician compare, hospital compare, right? And so, I mean, like, I think using them as a gold, more or less gold standard, and they've had a lot of political pressure. I mean, they're, you know, I think with the, with the, the Obamacare, the ACA, and with, um, you know, even the passage of MACRA, there was, there's more kind of push for public, um, public display of this information. And, you know, CMS has tried to roll these things out. I think they've seen the flaws in our methodology. And I mean, just earlier today, I was just looking um, at myself and our our region on, on the physician compare for spine. And all they can tell tell us right now, I just I'm looking right now, is that you know they, they have no rankings for us as physicians. And all they can say is that we successfully reported Medicare quality program performance information, and so that we participate in, in one of the we actually are in an ACL, and so. That's ours, but then the competing group in town also has a, a note here that they use an electronic health record, and we've used one since 2009, but that doesn't show up on my profile. And so, you know, for whatever reason, I mean, that's that's obviously like you know, why that doesn't show, why he gets, he gets the electronic one and I don't. I mean, that makes no sense. But they've realized that the, the data don't have the data, and so you know, I think CMS 
just needs to, I mean, there needs to be something, uh, you know, we need to advocate in some way that, you know, try and use CMS as a gold standard because they're certainly open and willing to work you know, with us. And they, they've worked with the, the other organizations like the ACS NISQIP, and they have their own links together. The ACS NISQIP has a hospital compare. They feed in their data to Medicare, so Medicare can use that. And, um, you know, and, and what NAS can do is just be at the table and be like, look, you know, the data is not there yet. We're trying to collect it with our registry, and so bear with us. But we want to be—we want to have a seat at the table, so that we have a voice to express our concerns about these third-party reporters. I'd like to move on a little bit to some of your personal thoughts about what each physician can do for themselves um, or themselves. Excuse me. What are your specific strategies and or and or what are your university strategies for managing your online reputation? I know you alluded to it earlier. I'm I'm I've been waiting to ask you the question because I'd love to hear these answers. Sure. You know, I, I think you know, first and foremost, I mean, being the best physician you can and you know, remembering why you went into medicine is is fundamental. And um we're trying to demonstrate that empathy, trying to not let frustrations from, you know, IT burden, the EHR, um, you know, payment issues, insurance companies get in the way of taking, you know, the best care of patients and trying to, um, you know, trying to do the right thing at all times. You know, I think if you're an excellent physician, you know, ultimately that's going to shine locally within your organization and, you know, and then even on these online online reviews. And so when I looked at different you know, surgeons in our department and in our region that I know have kind of sour reputations because of the patients that I see, I mean, it's interesting that um, you know, this is yeah, obviously subjective and I can't quantify that at all. But the reviews certainly reflect that, right? I mean, when you when I see patients you know, for second third opinions, kind of things that I that they tell me that the other physicians have said to them really shock me. And so. And this you know, falls into some of the younger members, and I've been, and I have several friends that are starting practice at a fellowship, and I and I you know, tell them the same thing. I mean, try and be the best physician you can, minimize your complications, be attentive to your patients, see your patients, demonstrate empathy, and, and there's been uh, several studies that have demonstrated that orthopedics, you know, and for neurosurgery, um, suffer in the uh, in the communication category often. And poor communication, I think, leads to poor reviews. And so I just think fundamentally doing anything you can to improve your communication with your patients is key. And I'll go as far as to even give myself one uh, out to, to select patients and, and that, I'm, that I'm concerned about and have them text me about updates and, and just ensure that they have a clear pathway to being seen again and to contacting our office. And so that's uh, obviously one kind of whole strategy. And then, you know, personally, I think it's important for every physician to, to regularly check, you know, Google, Mr. Google and, and look at the various sites to see if there's any erroneous um, or concerning, uh, um, you know, posts, um, and then address those just directly, uh, you know, talking with the, with the website or, again, trying to motivate yourself to, to have patients, you know, write, uh, write positive reviews. And then you can go as, even as far as, um, directly encouraging having a card printed out or an email um, prepared that way you can send highly satisfied patients um, um, information or ways that they can they can perform these reviews and really ask them. So it's important that you're 
you know, that, that this experience is known to the outside world. Would you please, you know, perform a review and getting that? I, I'm, you know, I'd like to do that. I, per, I don't. I mean, I do ask patients at times, but I'm not as regular as I should about about doing that. Um, but that's, you know, it, and even on your own website, you can you can build that in if you have your own website and have patients link right to a WebMD or a um, vital or health grades to do those ratings. And then finally, our hospital has taken a strategy very recently of actually posting our press gaining HCAPs and our internal rating scores. And so they do a brief vetting, not necessarily the scores, but but also of the of, of the comments and things that are irrelevant to the individual physician, like, you know, I, I, had, I had a double room, I didn't have a single room. I mean, that, that kind of stuff is not relevant necessarily to the physician. Um, but they've actually started posting um, a star rating. And there's some of our physicians that don't have very good star ratings. And so, um, but at least if you keep it internal and if you Google a physician's name, usually at their university, their, their business is going to be the first result. And if you control your own content to some extent, um, you can control that, uh, your, your destiny a lot, a lot better. And so I think we'll see more and more academic medical centers and practices um, doing their own kind of posting of these, uh, of these scores. So. I echo your comments regarding the poor communication amongst um, patients and spine surgeons and neurosurgeons. Um, I, I feel that my second opinion patients are more likely seeing me because they just had poor communication with either one of the other types of surgeons. So I agree with you. Um, it's not just the surgeons either. <laughs> we, right. A lot of times we fall into it. And, and even the people that you would think would spend the most time with patients in primary care, they get to, you know, people feel like they're coming to visit the computer instead of the doctor. So. Yeah, and I, I agree. And I feel, I mean, you know, one, one, I mean, of, of course, it's important. And, you know, not, not that you just bring up other specialties. I have a partner who's a physical medicine rehab doctor, and he, I mean, he's built his practice historically on, you know, chronic pain and difficult to find patients that don't necessarily have a solution. And so, I mean, this goes into, you know, some of the other, you know, as, as we look to, to almost risk-adjust our patient satisfaction, I think that's necessary. I spent time looking through our pediatricians and our pedi pediatric oncology uh, folks that have rate rankings, and they're, I mean, they're almost all five stars within our system. But the people that treat chronic incurable problems, i.e. chronic back pain, in an era where, you know, people, everyone, there's a, there's a dearth of people, several people that want narcotics that we just, it's not, you know, good practice to give, and they're unsatisfied with, um, it's not, you know, having a solution to their chronic chronic problems. It really, I think, biases some of, uh, you know, spine providers more negatively. And with our own hospital system, I've been arguing for a risk, more quote-unquote risk-adjusted, or at least, Specialty norm or subspecialty normalized score, because I'm never going to be able to score as good as the you know, some of the pediatricians or the pediatric oncologists who are saving kids' lives every day. Um, you know, more or less, it's just you know the population we treat is more challenging, and we don't have um, always have immediate solutions. And so I did think I need to be part of the part of the part of the process. Is really asking for risk-adjusted satisfaction. I, th I think that's an excellent point too. I really do. It's it's so hard to you know, you're definitely comparing apples to oranges, and when you're giving somebody a number or a letter grade, it's it's not um, you know there's an inherent bias 
like, you know, to people who are going to have, um, just by the nature of their patient population, they're going to have people that are dissatisfied if they don't get what they think they want, which may not be appropriate. Well, I would like to ask the question again, but with a more specific subset of spine surgeons. Would you have any different comment or any additional comment to a brand new spine surgeon, one that's just coming out of their neurosurgical residency or coming out of their fellowship in spine surgery? And I know this said some of these comments before, but just being, you know, being an excellent doctor and really thinking that, like, okay, during this period of time, you know, you need, yes, I mean, most of us have, have had tremendous amounts of debt and we're coming out, but you need to establish your reputation as a reasonable, or at, you know, at least a reasonable, preferably excellent surgeon and physician. And so, um, you know, being conservative in your, in your approach and your indications, um, being very, very thoughtful in your decision-making and uh, completing your follow-up, you know, and, and just kind of goes to being an empathetic physician and being, you know, being a reasonable physician is a key. That's kind of a starting block. And then, um, you know, beyond that, you know, of course, trying to build up your own um, media, whether it's a website, uh, Twitter feed, Facebook page for your business, but really trying to develop some social media tools. And, you know, I've tried, I started to try and build my own website, but I work for a hospital that wants, to, that wants to control it more. But we've been engaged with our media relations department. And, you know, we used to make, um, well, we make various physician videos and specialty videos. And so um, just working with, I mean, most institutions um, are large, like, like, like ours, will have some kind of marketing or media department. And these new physicians should look to contact them immediately if the system already isn't working to do that and to try and build some materials, handouts, um, trying to, um, you know, establish you know, a good reputation in the community, you know, certainly online and even in, in, in person um, would be some of my, my suggestions. Thank you for those suggestions. Um, I, I believe our listeners will get great information and um, hopefully use them to their benefit. You do mention in the article about these reputation management companies and indicate that they are, quote, arguably not worth the price, end quote. But is there a place for them in this busy, confusing time where information is all over the place and anyone with a smartphone can either report things, review it, or put it on a social media site, and in general, where do you believe this reputation management is headed? Well, I think I think it's ultimately headed to be internal and to be dealt with, it's, even, if, even if it's a small, obviously it can be harder if you're a single specialty or a single uh, sole provider, but in multi-specialty groups and single specialty groups in, you know, hospital systems, it just needs to become vocabulary of, you know, the practice management, just like the finances are and, you know, productivity reviews. It seems like, well, what's our reputation management strategy or plan? And, you know, whether it's just for every, you know, having a, a pipeline to um, report in different forums, uh, positive patient interactions. And, you know, these companies, they, when you really look at what they do, I mean, they do things that if you just pay, if you just think you know, they, they help you identify, you know, opportunities to put websites, to, um, to post you know, ways that you can get patients to post positive reviews, but it's just, a lot of it's just common sense. 
And for those that really just don't even want to do it, I think it's fine to engage with a reputation management company. But they're like, they'll charge you thousands of dollars and do, and if you're going to um, bother with that, you, know, you can you can do for, with very little time um, what they what they would do um, um, by, by just uh, by by engaging um, you know each of the, each of the surgeons within within your group and ask them, hey, just you know, Google your name. Uh, try sending some patients and just developing a, like a local strategy. I think is much more productive than having individual physicians you know, paying paying thousands of dollars a year. Because a lot of these things, like just like websites, they'll hit you up for recurrent fees every year to do very basic things. And um, um, it's it just they're, they're, in my opinion, after looking at this, I think uh, most people could, could do, even if they're very t tech unfriendly, could do uh, what these companies can do. Themselves. Thank you again for that. Um, I, I would like one last specific question uh, answered, if you could. This one is about the dreaded event that if a physician or surgeon does see a negative or or even an erroneous review of themselves um, or themselves on a website. What would you recommend, or what is your advice to them for that event happening? Sure. I mean, the, I mean, the last thing that, that someone wants to do is immediately post a reaction, right? I mean, you, you want to certainly take time, you know, print this thing out, and take a step back. You know, wait at least 40, 48 uh, hours or a week before taking any action. But, um, I mean, certainly seek advice. I mean, you can start by... Um, yeah, I, mean, I, would, I would seek advice from from other uh, physicians uh, that are friends. From you know, maybe even contacting the website would be reasonable. But yeah, if it, I mean, depending on the nature, if it's just like, I mean, if it's a true, um, if it's a, if it's a true negative event, um, I mean, trying to contact the website and say, you know, I disagree with this. What's my, um, you know, what, what kind of uh, repercussions or what kind of um, you know, actions can can we take about this? And you know, say I disagree with this. And if they say there's nothing we can do, take it down. They they should let you at least post a response. But um, but if you post a response, I, I would encourage someone to be very very empathetic, because patients would be reading these, not necessarily you know these are patients that read these reviews. And so the last thing that you want to come off as is an, is, is an arrogant surgeon or an arrogant physician. Um, but Trying to be very empathetic, apologetic, um, depending on the nature of the negative comment. But you know, I guess step one is just you know, just to get it kind of taken down if that's not possible. If you feel compelled to respond, um, uh, being very empathetic in your response, and um, you know, just getting getting seeking this advice. You know, or like for example, our hospital has a legal team, and you may ask them what they, what they would do. And then you could always ask the patient, I mean, this is someone that you have a good relationship with. Like, obviously, in my example I gave earlier, I did not ask the patient or do anything, but I ultimately found it just to, you know, while I was very upset for a week or two, it just kind of dissipated and went to the back of my mind. And I don't, you know, I, I think the, the other reviews and other things we have on the Internet have overwhelmed that, uh, that, that negative comment. But I think it, it can serve as a motivator, too, to, to get in the game reputation management yourself. Like, man, you know, for the finger review, I need to post 10 or 20 positive reviews to float that out. So, even on Amazon, you'll see the best products have, have uh, you know, a thousand reviews, but if you look, they'll have like 2% zeros or ones. 
but you still buy the thing because it's got five stars. And so, um, yeah, I, I think just using it as a motivator and not uh, reacting, overreacting or reacting uh, hastily. Yeah, and there's definitely a difference between an erroneous and a negative review. I think an erroneous review, and I liked your comment about Amazon because I tend to do a fair amount of product shopping before, you know, getting reviews online, especially when there's choices for things. But, boy, it's fascinating that some of the – some of the, even the companies – and they're not snippy and they're not, you know, certainly depending on what the product is, you can be a little bit more, um, you know, funny in your responses. A physician wouldn't want to do that, but you certainly, as you said, don't want to come off arrogant when responding to those. But I, I'm fascinated by some of the product reviews. If, if a product review is a, a zero or one and the, the company comes back and replies to it and says, oh, we're really sorry that that was your experience, you know, uh, here's our number. Please give us a call. Let, let, let us talk to your customer, you know, through customer service. And so they, they give an outlet to actually address that negative review. And I think physicians Absolutely. could, could I mean, do the same thing. Yeah, like at our hospital, we have a pay, office of patient experience that handles complaints like that. And, I mean, exactly that. I mean, even if you're not going to have individual physicians going through, but having your system go through and, and looking for negative responses and posting something exactly like that, yeah. showing empathy, and providing yep. an outlet offline to respond to this, I think, goes a long way. Dr. Puglia, I thank you for the answers to these questions today. Those are all the specific ones, and I think our, I believe our listeners certainly learned quite a bit of information about physician hospital reputation management. But I do have one more general question, and this is mainly because in this day and age of journal articles with word limits and page limits, I wanted to know if you had any additional thoughts that didn't fit into the article because of those limitations that, that you would consider good information right now for a physician and a surgeon to have. I don't really have anything specific to say, I just, but I'd like to emphasize just a few things that we thought we, we discussed previously to highlight as we close that, um, you know, that keep in mind, you know, I think the, the holy grail for certainly NAS and us as fine providers is good data. And so anything we can do to, you know, and this is this takes years, decades, but build up lost registries of actually good data. Because without good granular data, we're never going to have, you know, appropriate assessments of, uh, of quality. And ultimately, that's what we're, we're, we're heading towards. And so um, anything you can do, people can do locally um, or, you know, nationally on, on various you know, organizations like NAS to get this good data, get into, into the hands of people like CMS or even these um, even private websites, I think will really help um, improve the skepticism about you know, physician reputation uh, on third-party ranking sites. And then, you know, I'd also just emphasize to, to surgeons just to, to not forget your fundamentals. As much as I review different ratings on, on, on surgeons locally and nationally, you just you can't forget that, you know, we're in this for the patients and um, being – advocate for the patient, communicating well with the patient is um, there's just no substitute. And if you, you know, if you're an excellent physician, you know, high quality rankings will um, likely follow. And there's certainly techniques and other things you can do to uh, to enhance those, but just nothing makes up for being a, a phenomenal physician. Gentlemen, uh, I want to thank you both for being on this podcast um, today, Dr. Sullivan specifically, could you thank the editorial board at Spineline 
for um, allowing this article to be featured. And Dr. Pugley, I appreciate your time today and also for the article. I encourage our listeners to read the article that was written. And hopefully um, this podcast allowed the information to be disseminated more widely and hope that you enjoyed it. Lastly, I hope to see everyone at the North American Spine Society annual meeting in about two weeks. Thank you. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.